All right, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to SaberSims DFS Office Hours. It is Monday, June 13th of 2022. Uh, we've got a nice 10-game baseball slate on tap here for us tonight. Uh, kind of a rare, larger Monday night baseball slate. Normally, the Monday night slates are a little bit smaller. Uh, and, of course, Game 5 of the NBA Finals. So uh, a nice little day for DFS here setting up for us. Uh, if this is your first time watching Office Hours, my name's Jordan. I'm the head coach here at SaberSim. And DFS Office Hours is an open Q&A style show where I answer questions from the SaberSim community about how to better use SaberSim, uh, how to build better DFS lineups, really whatever you guys want to talk about. If you watch or listen to this show and you'd like to ask a question for me to answer here, you can email us, support at sabersim.com. If you're joining me live, you can ask your questions in the YouTube live chat, uh, and you can also ask your questions in the Office Hours channel in our Slack community. If you are not already a part of our Slack community, please join up. Uh, great conversation going on there every single day. We've got a lot of sharp DFS minds in our Slack group. We've also got Sim Alerts channels that will let you know when news is breaking for different sports, uh, when we're running new simulations for different sports. Uh, and of course, uh, the Office Hours channel, where you can post your questions here for this show. I generally, generally try to tackle those questions that are in Slack here first. So uh, a good spot to fire away on those questions. We've got uh, a handful in our queue for today already. Uh, a number of them, uh, follow-ups here to some of the conversations we've been having this past week. Uh, I'll get the app pulled up here real quick, and I'll actually first go ahead and bounce us over to our YouTube channel, uh, where um, if you scroll down the most recent two videos in our office hours, uh, actually, uh, actually, okay, two of the most recent four videos uh, in our office hours channel here, uh, we had uh, other folks on from the SaberSim team uh, talking about some of the work we've been doing here behind the scenes. So uh, nine days ago now, I had Eric on talking about some of our contest selection uh, research we've been diving into here this summer. Uh, we revealed our new framework for contest selection based on Eric's research. So uh, definitely give that a watch. We have some follow-up questions here on that video today. Uh, and of course, three days ago here on Thursday of last week, um, we had Matt on talking about our updates to correlation uh, and lineup percentiles and sim precision that we released last week. Uh, so build updates there. So we have some follow-up questions about those two videos, uh, those two streams and updates we did last week, uh, and then a handful of other questions about a variety of different things here. So uh, excited to jump into it. Um, let's uh, let's go ahead and, and jump right in. Um, I actually, so I, I want to start here. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to start with a question here from Joe. Uh, and this was about that contest selection video here. There's a bit of a conversation that has kind of spawned off in Slack about this, but I will offer uh, my my two cents here. Um, and the question says, could you run through the MLB contest selection for someone who does not have access to the $3 and below contest and for someone who has a larger bankroll and can play thousands and thousands of dollars uh, a night within their bankroll? And there's a bit of a conversation going on here in Slack uh, with Shady Advice. Um, and I do think there is a really good point there made uh, from Shady Advice that, you know, as your bankroll does get bigger and bigger here, uh, I, I do think there is some argument to specializing a bit uh, and studying your results and, and asking yourself, you know, um, 
where where does my greatest successes come from based on the way that you particularly play DFS? I think especially as you get above that $3 threshold and you play a higher and higher volume, uh, you might find that your strategy and the way that you think about DFS particularly lends itself a little bit better to smaller fields, especially when you're investing more, right? Uh, maybe that $250 four max or some of the higher dollar single entries suit your skill set a little bit more. Maybe you... Uh, maybe you are set up better for multi-entry kinds of stuff, right? Maybe you play in a strategy or larger fields, right? Uh, maybe you play in a strategy that naturally kind of uh, lends itself better to beating larger fields, uh, maybe playing a more diversified portfolio, maybe fading ownership a little bit more, things that you might have to do to be successful in a larger field kind of contest. Now, that's not to say uh, you can't still apply the framework that I discussed last week uh, or two weeks ago, maybe now with Eric, right? And I'll show you kind of how I would think about going through uh, and doing that. But I do, I, I do think that at that point, uh, especially you know, if you're talking about getting two, three, four, five plus thousand dollars down a slate, uh, it, it is probably worth doing some kind of analysis of your past contest history and and asking yourself, you know, where am I most successful? Uh, where am I where am I making most of my money and specializing a little bit there? Because at that point, there are a lot of different options to go. Right. Uh, and there's an opportunity cost to playing one contest instead of another. Right. If you're, you know, if you have three thousand dollars to play on a given slate and you're going to max the flagship, right, that's twenty two fifty most nights. Right. There's a big opportunity cost of where that money could have gone into higher dollar single entries instead. And if you have a, a bankroll of that size and you can demonstrate a greater success over a long period of time in those smaller field, single entry, high dollar kinds of contests, then maybe that's where you should be. With all of that said, I think you can, can continue to apply the same strategies here uh, from the, the framework we had discussed last week above $5 and for a larger bankroll. Uh, and I would do it the, the exact same way. Actually, first, let me go ahead for those that maybe haven't seen this before. Let's get the slides, the slide pulled up first. Um, give me just a second here because I think it would help to have this up first to review. Uh, give me just a second here. Okay. So as a quick review, right? Oh, and that's a little bit harder to see. Let's there, let's do that. We'll take this down for a second, right? As a quick review, right? Still focusing on around two to two and a half to 5% of your bankroll. I would say if you are up in the higher stakes stuff and talking about filling out the flagship contest, higher dollar single entries, right? You are going to be facing a sharper competition at that point. I would think about maybe leaning on the lower end of this. Uh, if you don't even have access to the, what really are the softest contests in the lobby, which are under the three dollar, uh, the unexperienced contests available out there, uh, you're you are you are going to be facing sharper fields. So I would lean on that lower end there, right? And then we're going to think about diversifier contests and elevator contests, right? The diversifiers are going to be generally the larger field multi-entry contests that allow you to get a lot of unique lineups in play and ultimately serve to lower your variance in the long term. And elevator contests are going to be the smaller field, a lot of times single entry, three max, less than 10 max kinds of contests that have a little bit higher upside. Uh, what your goal is here is to fill in 50, 75% or so of your total allocation with those diversifier contests. You're going to, in general, fill lowest to highest entry fee. The reason for that primarily is because it allows you to get more unique lineups in play. Um, and yeah, and then you're going to fill the remaining allocation up with those elevator kinds of contests, right? So single entries, three max, and so on. So we can pull DraftKings back up here uh, and take a look at this, right? And see what this would actually look like. So in practice here, um, and let's make this a little bit bigger, right? 
So let's say you only have access to the the uh, un- the experienced players allowed, I guess, the veteran contest, whatever you want to call them, right? So uh, we're still playing tournaments here. We're playing the classic slate. So I would actually look here um, at the, whoops, I hate this tooltip. I know I've said it so many times. This thing always pops up at the worst possible time, right? And I would look at starting to fill some of these out here, thinking about where can you fill your diversifiers first, right? So let's look at, and I've actually found this is a little bit easier on a phone where you can control more filters, right? You can actually filter individually uh, part different contests here um, a little bit easier, but this'll, this is still fine, I suppose. Um, so I would think about here probably getting into this knuckleball first. Now, this isn't the first knuckleball they open today. This is the second one. It looks like this one maybe has a little bit of a different overall uh, prize structure and size here. That first one filled up really fast, right? But I think above that $5 range, the best diversifier you're going to be able to get into. Actually, really, I should mention, um, on on days where this is an experienced player allowed contest, which today I think it is, this is probably your best diversifier to enter first is the $4.20 max. Uh, so because this is above 25K prize pool, you would have access to this. Uh, so I would think about getting you know, into this particular contest first. So $80 or so there, um, continuing to fill up diversifiers in this particular knuckleball, you could get 42 entries times five times five, another 210. So we're around 290 total dollars there. Continuing to go down here again, I'm mostly focusing on large field GPPs. Then you get yourself to the flagship. So let's say you're playing, you know, uh, Let's say you're playing $3,000. You're trying to get, well, maybe let's do $2,000 uh, to get down in the part- in this particular slate, right? So I would say that I am looking for 75, 75% of that maximum in diversifiers. So that's $1,500. We got $300 into the knuckleball and the four-seamer. I would put an additional $1,200 divided by 15 I would put another 80 entries probably into the flagship there. And I would consider myself that's that's a good, that's good for my diversifiers. Then I would look at my remaining $500 and figure out how I'm going to get that down into the elevator single entry kinds of contests. So there's a lot of uh, smaller field kinds of things that you can get into here. Um, starting, or I guess smaller dollar things that you can get into here, starting with like the chin music and the five tool player, right? You might as well get into those, get into the base hit. Uh, as this starts to increase, right? You're filling in, again, entry fee, lowest to highest. You're filling in the home plate, the skipper, the sacrifice fly, right? Uh, looking for small field kinds of contests, right? Um, I think the power alley actually makes a lot of sense as an elevator type contest as well, right? Less than 10 or so entries into this. So I'd be filling out the, the power alley here. Uh, I'd start to get into the higher dollar things here, right? Upper deck, $75, three max, um, what is this 88? This is a 30 max, this 88. So I would avoid this at this particular bankroll probably here, right? Where this is going to be a little bit more like a diversifying contest. Um, then you're getting into things like the battery, the 121. The ball four is probably, we're looking to fill about $500. You probably wouldn't get all the way there, right? Um, but I would, that's that's kind of the way I would think about filling these up. Now, 
there's a couple things that, that, that start to come into play here. One, I, I'm not actually going through and entering these contests because, of course, I'm not going to be playing these contests here tonight. But also because I think I want I think one of the things that maybe I failed to do the first time we did this is I want to make sure that this is clear that this is a framework that you can use to to select your contests and not so much of a, a exact rule uh, for enter these contests when you're playing this particular bankroll, right? This, this should hopefully be uh, functional and effective for you in different sports, different lobbies, that kinds of thing, right? Um, the rules are still going to be the same overall. But second, and again, coming around full circle, right? Especially as you really start to get up here to this higher dollar stuff here, um, you know, if you told me that somehow your your bankroll allocation allowed you to start entering uh, the Thunderdome or something like that, right? Uh, you you really you, you have a different. You're playing a little bit of a different game there, especially when you get to the really high stake stuff. Uh, I, I the the strategies like that that contest is not just like an elevator contest in the same way that the uh, $12 or the $25 single entry is right. At that point, you're playing uh, kind of a, a higher, a higher stakes metagame against the individual people at that table or that lobby. Right. Uh, and it's, it's that, that game is going to play a little bit different there. there. So, um, you know, I think that that's still kind of a helpful overview of, of how to approach this kind of framework with a higher dollar, um, with a, a higher dollar strategy. Um, but yeah. So uh, Joe, if you're around, let me know if that was helpful. Um, again, I, I also, this is intended to be, I think this is intended to be a, a framework that is probably most effective if you are playing 500 to maybe $1,000 or less a night right? Uh, to where you have a ton of different ways that you could spend that money, right? Like, so if you're playing, if you're playing $250 a slate, right, there are, and you have access to the lower dollar things, I mean, there are countless ways you can spend that $250, right? That That's kind of goal of this in part is where's the best ways to spend that money. Now, if you have $2,500 to spend on a slate, and especially if you don't have access to the under $3 stuff, there are less ways to spend that money, right? Like it's, I think it actually, I think it actually makes seeing the framework a little bit more clear because there's only so many different contests to enter, right? Um, and because of that, you, you know, you there, there. I think you can lend a little bit more weight to that personal skill set component, right? If you told me, you know, look, based on my past four years of playing baseball DFS, I crush fields 10, 10 entry max or lower, uh, and I'm break even playing any large field stuff. Well. Should I still play diversifiers? No. Like at that point, you you've demonstrated a, a skill set uh, and a a strategy that's working for you in a particular contest mix. I would focus on that. Um, or maybe it's qualifiers, right? Maybe you, maybe you have a a particular edge playing really uh, highly variant, uh, aggressively ownership faded qualifier contests in like uh, you know the thirteen dollar and the the one ninety five dollar larger field, somewhat larger field qualifiers, right? Then, then, then chase that if that's your edge. Uh, so anyway, I'll let this one go. I, I want to talk about a couple other questions. Joe said that was very helpful, so I'm glad. Um, and uh, I wanted to talk about a couple other questions here about this same topic here. Um, so let's dig them up first. Um, okay, so this was from um, In It to Bink It here. Um, I already see a bunch of questions coming in YouTube chat, guys. So just be patient. We're going to roll through the questions in Slack first. Then I'll hop over to YouTube chat. Uh, so in it to Binkit said, 
One more question after watching the contest selection video. When would a contest not be worth playing? For example, the $1 20 max in tennis is normally 200 up top, which is normally only 10x your buy-in. Is this too low? I'm I'm still okay with that. I think where I start to maybe be a little bit concerned uh, is if the prize to first is less than 5x your total investment into that contest, uh, which is very rare. Uh, In fact, I don't even know if I ever see anything that's actually categorized as a tournament where that doesn't happen. The only thing that comes to mind is they, sometimes there's things called con these. Okay. So these contests, uh, occasionally these will have a very flat payout structure, but even these ones actually look pretty good. Uh, occasionally you'll see sometimes these just like generic contests, contests, uh, will have a really flat payout structure and you won't get five X, uh, the entry fee to first. But basically again, I'm not saying five X of an individual entry fee. I'm saying five X your total investment into the contest. Right. Um, so here, right? You max out the, the $1.20 max, you're $20 in, you get 200 up top to first. That's fine by me. Because um, you got to remember, you know, that's that's basically saying if you bricked all 19 entries and then one entry got first place, you would still 10x on the slate, uh, right? I, I, that's, that's enough upside for me to feel comfortable playing that contest. I know you had mentioned League of Legends as well, uh, that there is like a $1. Um, so, you know, even in this particular situation, you enter for $20 here. Um, and you, uh, I, I guess ultimately I would want probably at least a hundred dollars up top to, to find, to feel like this contest is worth playing that any one given entry would at least five X my total investment onto the slate. If this was the only contest I played, um, here. So, yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of a heuristic, uh, that is to be fair, something that is, was not something that we really like sussed out in this research project with our contest sims. Um, we didn't, apart from the ways that, you know, payout structures naturally kind of showed up in our contest analysis, right? What I mean is like, let me actually, let me put it this way. We didn't isolate payout structure as a variable and analyze it when we did our contest sims for this particular framework, right? We let the, the we let the payout structures naturally come to us because we were analyzing real contests, right? When we analyzed the minimax, we actually took the real minimax payout structures from historical slates and calculated expected value and, and ROI and things like that against the payout structure. So I, I guess a good way of saying this is when I say 5X my buy-in, that is a heuristic that I use that feels kind of mostly right. That's not a number that we arrived at, I would say, scientifically. But we have kind of accounted for payout structure somewhat naturally in the the context of our our baseball contest selection analysis. Um, so all of that to say, like I I think this this approach still kind of works even for some of these smaller sports. Uh, hopefully that was that was helpful there and didn't didn't end up con- confusing anybody more uh, with that. Um, but let me know if there's still more follow up questions. Happy to dive in a little bit more deep there. Um, Okay, so um, a question from Jimmy here, um, also on the contest selection thing. We're kind of jumping around a little bit here to um, stay on the same topic here. Uh, This one said, uh, regarding bankroll management, the recent videos you guys did was excellent. Thank you. Uh, Follow-up question on that. If we say 5% of bankroll per slate, for example, what would you play multiple slates per day? Do you evenly distribute uh, or pick and choose ones to play? Example, maybe in the morning, I want to play LOL and CSGO, and in the evening, it's NBA or esports and F1, both in the morning. Thoughts? Yeah, so strictly speaking, uh, for sports, for separate sports, right, they are completely uncorrelated. Your results in 
uh, League of Legends does not affect your results in NBA unless you like go on tilt or something like that. But in theory, uh, your league results would not affect your NBA results. So those can be treated as totally separate, right? You could theoretically play, I would say, up to 5% on both and be fine. Um, I mean, a couple exceptions to that. First of all, you know, in theory, this number here, this two and a half to five percent, right? This depends on your edge and your risk tolerance, right? Um, so edge, I think, is key here, right? I think you should I think it's a good idea to have some understanding here of you know how what's your uh what's your edge in NBA versus in League of Legends, right? Is there one of those sports that you're better, uh, that you've demonstrated more success over over a longer sample or something like that? Uh, and in that case, maybe it makes more sense to play two and a half percent in League of Legends and 5% in NBA or something like that, right? Um, so I think that's kind of an important component. But otherwise, they are they are uncorrelated. It's essentially by chance that they are on the same day, that, that this is a problem even. Or I guess, like, let me put it this way. A day is a somewhat arbitrary unit of time to compare these two things or even an hour or anything like that, right? They're, they don't relate to one another. So in theory, you could play up to 5% in both. Um Tonight, for example, I am playing, I think, 5% of my bankroll uh, in both um, baseball and NBA showdown on both sites. So, um, cool. Okay. Let's keep it going. Epic Problem has a question here uh, about the sliders, and I think this is a little bit more about the, uh, the uh, builder updates or I guess these next two questions are both kind of about the builder updates, but this question says in the past, it's been mentioned that 0010 was a better slider set for MLB showdown versus the defaults. The contest normally displayed. Is that still the case after all the recent changes? Um, I don't, I don't know necessarily if I feel totally comfortable saying that it's, it's just flat out better. Right. Um, I typically prefer it. And I, I feel like it's somewhat anecdotal. Like I having built lineups on three zero ten, which is the defaults for most of the large field stuff. I kind of prefer zero zero ten. I think some of that mostly comes through of just like, a. I like the idea that every lineup I'm seeing when I build on zero zero ten for baseball showdown isn't optimal for a single simulation. Whereas technically because correlation is a modifier here, that may, may not be the case here. Right, that you could potentially get lineups that that were not optimals for single sims, or lineups that were closer to the top actually had a lower overall percent chance to be optimal than a lineup below it purely because of correlation. Right, that that kind of thing. Um, I don't think you're going to get killed either way here. I think like anything in between these two values is fine. Um, I I I still just kind of prefer zero zero ten because I want to know that my lineups are optimals. Um, I am in some in some ways kind of pushing back against you know what have we have determined based on our back tests is optimal for this sport. Um, I think the argument of leaving correlation on here a little bit in baseball is that in a sport where ranges of outcomes of players are so wide. Um, also, in a sport where in your showdown contest you are probably playing smaller fields. Uh, and it is just less overall likely that you need the stone optimal to take a contest down. We can allow for a little bit of a correlative factor to give our, to give ourselves lineups that are maybe even slightly less likely to be optimal, but a little bit more likely to take first in a 1000 person contest or something like that. Right. That's the argument. That argument makes a lot of sense to me. I think I just still yet prefer, uh, to 
build here, knowing that I'm seeing individual optimal lineups. Uh, Kurt made a very good point in Slack as well and something to look out for. Uh, and he said that having correlation on is actually going to depress the exposure you get to pitchers because they are essentially uncorrelated to um, most of the uh, hitters on their own team. And they are very heavily negatively correlated to the opposing batters, right? Uh, I mean, if you think about how a baseball game actually ends up playing out or how a baseball showdown optimal lineup is likely to come together, right? It, it, it's pretty easy to think about how, you know, you might have, you might have Josiah Gray and a couple Braves bats and, and maybe a couple Nationals bats in there as well, right? Well, Josiah Gray's presence in the lineup when correlation is on is going to reduce the percent chance of those Braves bats showing up in there, even though they're this kind of very clearly an optimal lineup that may include all of those players together. Uh, the way that ends up kind of resolving with the builder with correlation on is a little bit less exposure to pitchers. Something to be aware of there. Um, so, uh yeah, I mean, again, I think this this is a good opportunity to kind of jump into this question from Mr. T because it kind of relates. Um, so uh, Mr. T said, with the new updates to the sliders, it seems like this will have an impact on how the default sliders work together. As there hasn't been time to conduct significant back testing on the default sliders after the update, would it be prudent to start experimenting with the sliders? I know your default answer is to leave them alone. However, this new update potentially changes things. Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think you know, it is a good time to maybe do some, some experiments and see what the impact of that is. While we have not re-backtested the sliders completely, which is on our list to do, I will say that our testing for this new builder update was conducted on the default sliders for each particular contest size. So that that's not true backtesting, right? But I think that is worth noting here. Um, I will ultimately say that, you know, when it comes to the sliders, I'll say the same point that I always make, right? If you come to me and say, Jordan, what are the best sliders to use for this sport and contest? I will always tell you the defaults. But if you come to me and say, I'm trying to solve a particular problem, can I do this by making an adjustment to the sliders? I'll probably say yes, right? I want more diversity in my lineups. I'm building my lineups from the 20 max tonight, and I feel like I'm too concentrated on a few teams. What's a good way to solve that? Well, I think increasing the sim precision is probably a great way to solve that problem, right? You're going to look at a wider range of outcomes, essentially, uh, fewer number of sims for each individual lineup, naturally increasing your diversity. Or you may say, Jordan, I'm looking at these lineups that I'm getting uh, for uh, a um, single entry 500 person contest, and I feel like it's too chalky. Right. Well, there's a variety of ways you can resolve that, but one might be to experiment with a higher ownership fade slider. Right. So again, I think the sliders are an interesting thing on SaberSim here, where our our goal is not that anybody approach SaberSim for the first time and think, oh, this is where I make all the magic happen by finding the perfect values for these sliders, because we've put in a ton of work to put them where they are by default for the contests. And if you otherwise are unopinionated about where the sliders should be, I would say leave them where they are. But they can be a good tool. There's a reason they are editable, uh, and they can be a good tool to affect some change in your lineups if you want to. And I think given that we just pushed this big update that primarily affect the correlation and sim precision slider, uh, I think it's a good opportunity to experiment a little bit um, and, and play around. Um, for what it is worth, 
I have been building lineups. I, so I always have typically built lineups with a higher sim precision because I want more diversified portfolios of lineups. Uh, I have found since we've made this update that I've actually, what I was doing before is I was using a default, the default value for correlation and then also setting a stacking rule to force in a certain amount of constructions. Uh, I found that the new, the new, well, I don't even know why I did that. Yeah, literally the new correlation, the new upside correlation builds pretty good and better stacks by default. Um, and I've found that, you know, I've been kind of increasing the correlation and sim precision sliders for me. That's, that's what I've, I've found has been working for me, um, just since the past couple of days. So, um, but definitely, definitely experiment if, if you, if you want to, I guess. So, um, cool. Let's keep it going here. I think I, let me see if I missed any other questions here. Um, we'll hit this one real quick, uh, from TRD, uh, also on the baseball showdown thing, um, here, he said, I noticed on DK showdown, I often get five stacks from one team with only one player on the other team being their pitcher. Is there a way to set a rule against this? You know, I mean, on that note, one thing that you probably could do, uh, is, in, is like actually make sure that the correlation slider is on, or perhaps even turn that up a little bit more. Right. Um, like what, what that is basically saying is, you know, I don't want lineups. I, I guess let me preface this by saying, right. The, if you are building, if you, if you got a lineup like that at zero, zero, 10, especially a high saber scored lineup, right. That, I mean, that's actually saying that that lineup is optimal in at least one simulation and actually is somewhat frequently optimal in our sims, right. If you were actually getting that lineup. So, it, I mean, it's worth noting that, right. Because that it, it is not. By, it is not simply by pure chance that that lineup's coming up. Pure chance meaning it is not that that lineup scores well on average relative to player salaries, and that's why you're getting that lineup, right? That lineup is actually represented by a simulation. If you don't want more of, if you don't want those kinds of lineups in them, in your in your portfolio, I think a good way to at least kind of lower the likelihood of that happening would be by um, by turning the correlation slider up a little bit more or on at least. Um, you could also set a um, a grouping rule and say something like, um, I'm going to take Josiah Gray um, and we need to grab both him as a captain and a flex. And then maybe something like, I'm going to take um, every uh, Atlanta bat, right? So Atlanta, right? Now this is a little bit more time consuming, but this would be the most thorough way of limiting, limiting this. And you could say, so every Atlanta bat, and the reason I'm selecting each person twice is because I need their I need their utility player ID and their captain player ID. So we're getting everybody here, right? And okay, and then we create that group, and we could say, uh, you know, depending on what you wanted to do here, maybe it was less than or equal to three. Maybe you say at most. Oh, actually, you know what? That's going to do something kind of weird because that's going to limit your your. Okay, now I'm thinking this through. You probably wouldn't want to do it that way. Um, here's what I would actually do instead, because that's going to limit your ability to stack the Braves. Period. Right? Like if you do at least three, that's gonna that's gonna limit that period. Let's do this instead. Let's go ahead and just build a build here. I would say you're probably going to be better off pruning these kinds of lineups out of your build in the post build process here. Um, so, um, but, um. Let's see. I'll see, think about one other. We'll do. We'll do one other way that you could kind of limit this here. I think this is actually the better way of going about this. Um, 
So what I would instead do here is I would basically say, okay, let's look at situations where I five stack the Braves and see if I have any um, Josiah Gray. And I don't in this particular situation. Let's look at instead, let's see, Washington five stack. And wait, and Ian Anderson, do I have any of those? I don't have any of those either. Um, I think partially that's probably because the correlation slider is on actually. Um, let's see if I can find one here just so I can give you a demo of what I'm actually talking about here. Um, let's look at a four stack. Washington four with gray. No. So actually, I mean, maybe the best way to do this is to just make sure your correlation is on because uh, it doesn't look like we're getting any of these. Um, let's instead do it this way. Let's say, let's look at our Ian Anderson lineups. And let's say we don't want this Washington two stack, right? So let's go ahead and spotlight every lineup that has Ian Anderson as captain with a Washington two stack, and then we can just trash it. There's 40 lineups like that. So that would be probably the easiest way is to use the filters and to basically say these combinations of players just throw away. I don't want them in my pool. So, but I, for what it's worth, it does seem like turning on correlation is a pretty good way to, uh, to limit that. And that makes sense based on what we were talking about before. So, uh, okay, cool. Let's hop over to YouTube chat. Uh, Demetra said, should I use two or three players when running lineups? Um, I am a little unsure what you mean there. I might need a little bit more. Um, what it sounds like maybe, uh, is like, are you saying you should, should you lock in two to three players when running lineups? Um, you don't have to, I know a lot of times people will build lineups with SaberSim and this message here confuses people, right? DraftKings has a regulation that you have to make two changes to something for us to be able to show you your lineups, right? That's a DraftKings community regulation. Uh, that does not mean you have to lock or exclude two players completely. I think uh, that generally I found that's a point of confusion across the entire industry is that people tend to tend to think that that's what they need to do. Basically, you can make any two changes to projections, ownership or exposure uh, in the post in the pre or post build process. And then we can show you your lineups. Um, so. Um, oh, OK, I misunderstood here. Um, so uh, the actual question was unique players. Um so I don't use this that often, this min uniques thing. I typically leave this at one. Uh, with that said, I often turn up. So min uniques, what this does, this is a brute force way of diversifying your lineup pool, right? This is going to say, you know, let's say the best overall lineup you could play on the slate, the highest expected value lineup you could play, right? Is lineup A, uh, lineup one. And lineup two is the exact same lineup, but one player is different, right? Well, if you were maximizing EV, and you weren't caring about diversity or anything like that, you would probably want to just play that second lineup. Now, because there is a lot of variance in DFS, there's a lot of uh, different lineups you can play that all have pretty similar expected values. You may, some players may want to diversify their lineups further by saying, I don't want to play that second lineup at all. That first lineup is similar enough to the second lineup that I feel like I have enough equity in that first lineup give me a more diversified lineup as my second lineup instead, right? That is that is what Min Uniques essentially does. It forces diversity into your pool. Now, if that is something you want, 
I would experiment with increasing it. I probably would not go beyond three. I would probably say three is kind of a soft cap there uh, of how high I'd be willing to go. Mostly because as you get higher, you make two sacrifices. One, it will take your builds a long time to run. And two, you're sacrificing a lot of probably very good lineups at that point. So I would say three max here. Um, and I would say first, instead, for me personally, experiment instead with turning Sim Precision up. I have found that I, I much prefer if I'm looking at my lineups and thinking this is not diversified enough, I've found that I much prefer increasing sim precision than it changing the min uniques. Um, I think that is mostly because when you increase sim precision, you, you increase the diversity of your lineups, but you also kind of increase or, or maintain the upside of lineups because you're, you're increasing diversity by looking at fewer sims per lineup. Whereas min uniques is just a builder rule. Right, it's it's brute force. It's uh, it's it's telling the builder to basically throw away lineups and build new ones because of a of a of a somewhat arbitrary rule. So I, I don't love it uh, personally, um, but it, it can still be a useful tool to to increase diversity if you if you're looking for that. Uh, and actually, you know, I, I'm throwing diversity around a lot here. You know, specifically, I think what 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 Min Unique specifically does is it it decreases your inter lineup correlation. Right? If you have a lot of lineups that are similar to one another, your lineups are all likely to finish around the same spot in a contest. They're likely to be correlated, just like players in games can be correlated. Right? When you increase the min uniques, you decrease your lineup correlation. Your lineups are, are less likely to finish at the same area because they have to be a certain degree different from one another. So, um, But... Yeah, I guess short answer, I, I I think there's better ways to increase the diversity of your portfolio for me. So, uh, Demetrius said, would you recommend a max exposure of 30% for big slates like today? Uh, I think in 150 lineups, I would I think I will probably be around that percentage for my hitters. Um, I would be surprised if I was more than 30-ish percent exposed in 150 to any one hitter. Um, pitching is relatively spread out. I could see being up closer to 50% exposure to my highest exposed pitcher in my 150 here tonight. Um, that's kind of just based on what, what I'm seeing is approximately the highest owned play is kind of a gut check reaction of how many pitching options there are. Um, again, this is more about a personal risk tolerance thing than anything else, right? I play a diversified strategy. Uh, I, I like to be, I like to have exposure to a wide range of different players. I typically have a wide player pool. Um, so that, that's where I'll typically end up. Um, I will, I'm not, I'm not one to typically set a max cap. Um, I will arrive at what I arrive at a, a little bit more naturally, but I would expect that I would be around 30%. So. Uh, Patrick said us open will be here Thursday. I know I am very excited for it. I haven't played golf as much recently. Uh, so very excited for a major this week. Uh, I follow your rule of thumb for 150 entries, expand the pool to 1500. If I was doing more contests of 150 entries, do I need to expand my lineup pool or more than 1500 is overkill? Uh, yeah. Okay. So I think it sounds like you're talking about the research builds, right? Where you're like building 1500 lineups and kind of studying percent chance to be optimal and things like that. Um, the only reason I use 1500 for that is because that is the maximum cap that you can build at the moment within SaberSim. So if you could, you, so you, you can't build more than 1500 is the short answer here. Uh, if you could, I would, because it would make that build more accurate for now. 
for now. Uh, 1500 is the cap. So, um, so, and I actually think for, I think for what it is worth, I think the fact that the pool size is capped at 1500 is actually kind of a good soft cap reason to cap your number of unique lineups on a slate to around like 300 ish. Like if I'm, if I'm maxing out two different 150 maxes and playing a whole bunch of different single entries and things like that, I typically cap my number of lineups, my number of unique lineups around 300. That is around the number where I will start to duplicate lineups a little bit more. Um, I know that according to our contest selection parameters here, uh, it, the, the rule here is to put a unique lineup into every contest. Um, I think that's still theoretically optimal or correct, but given, given this parameter right now, I kind of prefer to have about 300 max unique lineups on any slate. Um, and, and the reason for that, like the reason these two things are related, right. Is, is if you were to build 300 lineups with a pool size of 1500, right. You were saying basically every lineup gets to get built five times and we pick the best one out of that, right? That's essentially what happens here. I like knowing that there were at least four other lineups that that lineup, every lineup in my pool beat out to get into my lineup portfolio. And as, you know, if you were playing 500 entries on a slate, right? Well, now you only have, now each lineup is one of three, right? And especially if you start editing exposures, right? Sometimes you arrive maybe at lineups that only exist in your pool because they were the only one that fit things like that. So I, I kind of use that as a soft cap. Um, but anyway, kind of a tangent there. I don't, I, hopefully that, that was helpful there uh, for what you were looking for. Um, Demetrius, what max exposure do you use for pitchers and hitters? Again, this isn't something that I hard cap most of the time. Uh, I certainly don't go into like a given slate and say, okay, my cap is this for tonight. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, this is general rule of thumb. Also, the one other thing, this is a this is uh, for a large field kind of 150 max type contest. My highest exposed hitter is generally, I would say it is it is 30% or approximately the expected ownership of the highest owned hitter on the slate. Somewhere between those would is props probably around where I end up. Uh, my highest exposed pitcher is generally somewhere between 50% and 2x the highest owned pitcher. Right. So like probably 50 to 70% owned tonight. Again, heuristics, those are just trends that I have noticed. Those are not things that I am forcing. I I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you go and force those numbers into your process, but I think that kind of can give you an idea of where I end up for large field GPPs. Uh, and then good question here from Demetrius again as well. How can I save the max exposure for pitchers once I change them so I don't have to update every every time I run? Yeah. So if you come in here uh, and make adjustments. Uh, as soon as this, okay. So if you come over here and like, let's say, let's say you want to play more diversified than you're getting here, right? Maybe you, maybe you only want 30% of any one pit, pitcher, right? So let's, let's adjust this here. So 30% max. So I'm just setting maximum exposures to each pitcher in the pool until I get to, well, maybe not each, but until I get to. Okay. So now I'm happy, right? Everything's 30%. I can click save, save my lineups, right? I'm good to go. Oh, some, suddenly news broke, right? Slate changed significantly. I need to update, but I don't want to lose this work. You can use this send button to send your exposures back home. So you can send either projections or exposures or both. 
In this case, I'll just send exposures. Uh, this is a useful warning here. This is important. This will overwrite everything you have on the home screen. So be careful of that, right? If you have other work done on the home screen, we will, we're going to overwrite it, uh, but we can send it back there. And then what you will see is those custom exposures are now here for those pictures. So if you were to build again, they would be followed in that particular build. So um, very useful. That's a new feature um, and a very useful one for that kind of stuff. So uh, Jen said, have you done lots of backtesting on the rep reproducibility of the SIM data? For example, if 10 SaberSim users ran the same SIM, how different are their lineups going to be on average? I don't think that's something we've done, I would say, significant backtesting on. Uh, there's a few different variables at play there. I will say this is something that you can kind of test, at least uh, do kind of an eye test for yourself by running builds uh, at different settings and seeing, particularly the SIM precision slider, right? Um, and seeing what the impact of that is. Uh, I think people, I think you would be surprised in general at how much diversity there is in between lineups, even at 001 settings, which is basically going to say, build me the optimal lineup using 125 SIM buckets of each game on the slate. Uh, you actually get a surprising amount of diversity here. Uh, you will get lineups that are directionally the same, right? If we like, if we like Nola and Manoa uh, and Alcantara and then Brave Stacks on the slate tonight, right? If like those are our favorite kind of constructions, you'll you'll get directionally similar lineups. Uh, but the actual literal line, it, it's hard to duplicate for a large for a somewhat larger slate uh, classic format even at zero, zero, 001. Uh, as this slider gets larger and larger, it becomes even harder and harder to, to actually truly dupe. Now, again, this is subject to a lot of different variables, right? I mean, part, part of the reason why in a sport like MMA, the optimal sliders are 2, 2, 10 is because you need, not only do you typically need the optimal to win a large field MMA contest, uh, but it is to your benefit to use single card simulations at this point to be as diversified as possible because we only have... Uh, we didn't even have like 12 fights. We had 11 fights. There's 22 fighters on the, the card, right? It's it's There are less lineups to build. You are going to be more likely to duplicate other users building on something like 001 for MMA. Um, because the Sim Precision Slider itself is the main controller of this, and that slider has been backtested before, I do think it, because that slider has been backtested before and because it is not in your favor from an expected value standpoint to duplicate other players that kind of naturally does get back tested a little bit in the form of back testing the sim precision slider. Um, but we, I would say we have not like rigorously tested actually how similar or correlated lineups are at different sim precision settings. Um, so I, I would encourage you to run some of your own experiments there. Again, I think you, I, I think, I'm saying this because I've experienced this. It is surprising on especially classic slates how how different the top lineups are, even at very low sim precision levels. And that only gets more extreme as you move along. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's an interesting question. Um, and I think, I mean, the, it begs a bigger question about duplication in general. Um, we are working on solving the problem, or, or I don't even want to say necessarily solving. We are working on building features to tackle the problem of duplication in a more explicit way at the moment. Uh, that is one thing that, you know, they're really, we talk about it a lot here on Office Hours, but there really isn't any mention of 
duplication anywhere on the app at the moment, even in sports and contest types where it matters, like MMA, right? There are a lot of powerful things you can do to build MMA lineups on SaberSim, uh, but nowhere really is it mentioned, you know, that a lineup might be duplicated or anything like that. Uh, and we're working on a way to build that in a little bit more um, natively at the moment. So it's a, it's a exciting, exciting project for us for sure. So especially, you know, NFL showdown is another one that comes to mind. Um, you know, three, three months away are we now? So, um, so Jen said, thanks. Makes sense. So is it fair to say that finding the winning lineup is like a treasure hunt where lots of Sabersome users are going with what they have and hopefully some of them will get it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, let's, let's say you're going into Sabersome every single slate and you are just like, without making any other changes, uh, just building lineups that are on the sliders for that particular contest and building and going and entering, right? The, the slice of lineups that you are going to get in not only just your pool of 500, but then especially your final pool of 20 here is going to be very much subject to a lot of variance, a lot of luck. Um, in, and in that way, like it is, it is, it is treasure hunty, right? Like, and I think, I think, you know, a lot of Saberson users maybe are starting from that same kind of somewhat blank slate or like that, not even blank slate, that foundation, right? Starting from the basic foundation and, you know, what somebody's process might end up being might be the way in which they isolate out what they feel like are the best 20 from that pool of 500 to over the long term slightly improve their chances of having that high upside lineup from that pool. Um, you know, others may, you know, like I, I do some things like that in the form of research builds in baseball to, to kind of tackle that in a sport like NASCAR. I don't know what I'm doing really. Uh, so a lot of times I just kind of trust that, you know, that foundation is strong enough to make me profitable to begin with. And uh, if I see, if I see a Saberson logo taking down a contest and I didn't right, like that's the way it goes. So uh, in that way, yeah, I guess it is a little bit treasure hunty um, where, um, you know, we're kind of, you know, starting from the same somewhat foundation and then try to isolate and find the best lineups from there. Um, I, I will say, you know, it, I think it is an advantage. Uh, one of the many advantages for using SaberSim uh, that you really don't have to think about um, diversifying from other SaberSim users very much. That question does come in somewhat frequently. Like, hey, how can I do things that are different from what other SaberSim users are going to do? And I think because of how how highly variant individual sims are anyway uh, and how highly variant selecting even 28 sims, for example, from each game on the slate gets your lineups. I, I don't actually think that's much of a concern above and beyond a, a sport where diversification and avoiding duplication is just a concern, period. Um, if you're using something like, you know, maybe you're using awesome up projections into FC, right? Like without using randomness, which also isn't even a very good solution. If you put in the same settings in your optimizer as I do, we will actually get literally the exact same lineups. Uh, and that's a flaw. That's not a good thing, right? So I think SaberSim has an advantage there a little bit as well. But um, Glenn said, I did note it. I thought, uh, I think this is a follow-up. I thought about scenarios for a while. I, I wasn't sure. Okay. I think I, I missed I missed this comment. I don't know exactly what that's referring to, um, but I am glad whatever question that was referring to, uh, I'm glad I was able to help. 
Um, HCs, how do you feel about percentile since the recent update? Yeah, I so I, I I'm not a frequent user of the player percentiles. Uh, I wasn't before the update. I think I am even less now, right? Um, you know, frankly, I think that that almost everything we're doing here now behind the scenes is going to outperform what you would theoretically get out of using the player percentiles, right? So, I mean, basically what happens now is, so Sabre score, right, out of 100 here, is basically a combination of the individual factors of correlation, right, ownership, and upside in the form of sim precision. And what we did in this most recent update is change the way that sim precision is factored into Sabre score. So what we now do is we'll take every lineup that we have in the pool and compare it to basically every single simulation we have for ever, for, for the slate and come up with the full range of outcomes for that lineup. So similar to how, you know, we have Alex Wood's range of outcomes in the Sims, right? We internally now have this lineup's range of outcomes in the Sims. And what we are doing now is based on where your Sim Precision slider is set, we are isolating a certain percentile of that. So maybe the top 5% of outcomes and the sim precision factor that fills into Sabre score is how well does that lineup perform in that particular percentile, right? Ultimately, you play lineups, not individual players, into contests. So, you know, the player percentiles factor similarly, right? They are basically saying, you know, let's shift Aaron Nola's mean to his 95th percentile outcome, effectively ignoring, or every player, we're shifting every player's mean to their 95th percentile outcome, essentially ignoring the bottom range of outcomes. But that doesn't really, that is like a band-aid workaround solution to the problem that the app now actually just solves straight up, like it, without having to do anything. So I, I wouldn't talk anybody down. You know, if you said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm using the percentile, I'm, I'm sure they're better, actually. I'm sure actually using them just like pretty much everything else in the app has improved since this update. I, I would say they're probably even a little bit like better than they were. I personally, in my process, feel even less inclined to use them because I think the problem space that they solve is better solved by the lineup percentiles that are being used behind the scenes. So um, I wouldn't talk you off of them if it's been working for you. If you have been uh, experimenting with percentiles in the past, I would say, you know, see how it's see how things are looking now. Uh, with this most recent update, I am, um, I wasn't using them before, so I'm, I'm, I don't feel more inclined to use them now, if that makes sense. Um, so, um, Patrick said, you ever built hand, hand built 150 lineups in the past before an optimizer was available? Not fun. I don't think I've ever done 150. I will tell you what, I won 12 CFL tickets for the opening week of CFL. Um, and we don't have those slates up in the app. Um, it's on our list to do that. Um, I'm sure uh, Eric on our team also would probably be pretty excited to, to help out building out CFL Sims, but that's not something the sport we support at the moment. Uh, I, I attempted to build 12 of those lineups and it was like pulling teeth. I, I could not believe how hard it was to hand build 12. And I think part of the problem there too is I was building for a sport that I was really unfamiliar with. Um, obviously I know football, but I don't follow CFL at all. So all the names were new to me. Um, I ended up doing really bad too. Um, I think I min cashed one of 12 lineups. Um, so, uh, had, had a couple zeros in there. I wasn't even really using projections. I was like basically just trying to build lineups that seemed correlated based on salary and historical performance. So uh, a lesson here, a good takeaway is, uh, don't play satellites for where the 
the ticket prize is something that you don't know how you are going to build those lineups. Um, I entered those because they were overlaying like crazy every single day. Like they would open, open, there were one, there were uh, satellites that were filling like 10%, 15% of the way um, for the CFL opening week contest. And then, and then the contest itself overlaid, right? So like you, you double dipped on basically playing super overlaid contests twice, uh, which was great. I just had no idea how to build the lineups. So uh, yeah, good takeaway there. Uh, no satellites if you don't know how to play the sport that the ticket is for. Um, so anyway, um, Jim said, Jordan, uh, when you upload projections, is there a way to save them and come back to them? Um, so they they will save, right? So like, let's, I'll just do this as an example. Let's grab these um, and do... Uh, let's do this. We will upload the median projections as the actual projections as an example here. So they, they will save in that they will not go away. Um, I should probably, okay. Ignore all and then projection. Sorry. I accidentally, I grabbed all like 1300 names here, which I probably didn't need to do. Okay. So like if you uploaded these custom projections, right, these will, these are saved in that they are, they are not gone. They will, and they will not disappear on their own unless you reset them uh, in terms of like saving a projection set and then switching back and forth or doing different things with those. Uh, there's no way to do that at this very moment, but we are working on that right now. Um, so in the works uh, is the ability to upload different projection sets, um, probably do some kind of aggregation and different things like that, averaging those in the app itself. Um, at the moment, there there's not a way to save your own projection set and then turn it off or off, on or, or you know, add it back in again later or anything like that. Um, so, but it's coming soon. And welcome back. I haven't seen you here in a while, Jim. I remember, I know you were watching a lot uh, during uh, football season. I remember your name. So I hope you're having a good uh, baseball season so far. Um, Kino has a question for me. Uh, and said, question about a research build. So let's say if my research build has minus 20 leverage on a certain pitcher, but my actual build has like plus 30 on him, how should we interpret it uh, when building the actual lineup? Also, if I'm building only 20 lineups out of 1,500, 200 lineups out of 1500. Should I just compare it to 200 uh, out of 1500 or research bill or 1500 out of 1500? Okay. I'm going to start with the second question first because it's easier. Um, the first question's hard. And that's kind of the, it's kind of the nuts of the research bill. Basically it's like the, the question uh, of a research bill. You should always, when you are analyzing your research build, right? So research build to be totally clear here, right? Because I know, I know this man, I managed to confuse people uh, with this every single time, right? When I, when I talk about a research build, I'm specifically referencing a very specific kind of a build. And it is essentially this. It is 0010 sliders, zero min salary, 1500 lineups. And what we are doing is we are saying, take 1500 single game simulations of the slate, right? Single slate outcomes and print the optimal lineup for that slate, right? Typically the tool or ultimately what I get out of this is I study how often a player shows up in the optimal lineup and compare that to their ownership projection. And you can kind of come up with a different tool of, you know, how, uh, how much I want to roster that particular player, right? It can be kind of a sense of that. Um, 
you would always want to use the greatest number of lineups as possible here, right? So definitely, definitely study your research build with all 1,500, not just the top 200. Uh, but, you know, if we could build more than that, I would, right? If we could build 10,000 lineups here, I, I would. The more data points in your sample for the slate sim, the better. There would be diminishing returns eventually, but I would probably want at least 10,000 lineups if I could do it. So the second question is really hard, right? So let's actually, let's actually, I should have probably just ran one. Um, the second question is hard and there's not a, a one size fits all answer here, right? So really what you're saying, okay, so you did this and you find that a, a pitcher has negative 20 leverage, right? But you're getting a lot of them in your build, right? Well, typically what this happens is you'll find, you know, typically the, the way that this ends up happening is that the best, the most likely pitcher to be in the optimal lineup is overowned by the field, right? So that's probably what's happening here tonight, right? Is we have, we probably have a guy like Aaron Nola uh, who maybe has, let me just see, I would say maybe a 20% chance of being the optimal pitcher, something like that. And maybe he's projected to be in 37, whatever it is, 40% of lineups. So you have this negative 20 leverage pitcher, but then when you go to build your 20 max lineups, you're getting 80% Aaron Nola. Like what gives, right? Well, what Sabersim is basically saying then is that, for that particular contest, you should eat that negative leverage, take advantage of that pitcher who still is the most single likely pitcher to be in the optimal lineup, and probably diversify elsewhere in the lineup. Probably maybe get some lower owned stacks or uh, a different construction or something like that. Right? That's that's what Saberson is telling you based on that angle of the test build. Right? So yeah, you can see it exactly here. Twenty one percent chance to be likely to the optimal. 37% owned, negative 60% leverage, right? And then real quickly here, just so we can go full circle, right? So, okay, I'm playing the $4.20 max. We're probably going to get a ton of NOLA, right? So like, what should you do? Well, I mean, the first answer to that, or like the first way of thinking about this is that, you know, Sabersim is already adjusting for ownership, right? Partially here. And maybe if you're playing a small enough field contest or a contest where you don't need to get perfectly optimal or something like that, maybe you... Just play, maybe you play NOLA, right? Or maybe you combine what Saberson tells you is the optimal approach plus this, your research build uh, and um, match the field, right? And say, you know what? I, I'm seeing conflicting, I'm getting conflicts, conflicting singles signals here. My research build says this, my test build says this. What do I do? I'm going to just, I'm not going to let NOLA beat me. I'm going to match the field, right? Or maybe you say, I was planning on fading Nola. He was my favorite fade based on what I learned from the research build, but Sabersim kind of likes him. So instead I'm going to go half the field instead of totally fade him. Or maybe you say, I, I don't care. I'm going to fade him completely, right? There's a lot of nuance that starts to come into play here. Um, so a couple things that I like to look at when I'm trying to solve this problem for me. And again, this is an important thing to note here is that there is not like a flow chart here that I can tell you do this, do this. And this is always the right answer. This is like, this is really, I think a lot of what comes down, like what is fun about DFS, like what DFS in some ways comes down to, right? It's like solving these kinds of problems. Um, so if we go back here, like one, some of the tools that I use to do this is I like to look at the opportunity cost of fading a player, right? So um, what's going on here? Let me get my build back up here. Right. What are the other options available there? What what probabilities are you fading by fading that guy? And in this case, I might still be somewhat willing to fade Nola. I don't know what happened. I don't know why my lineups aren't showing up here, which is really annoying. Um, 
let's see, am I doing something wrong here? I don't know what happened. Um, I might still be willing to fade Nola if if he only has a 20% chance to be optimal, right? But I know there's been slates even just this past month where like the top overall pitcher isn't a guy that's 20% likely to be optimal. He's 45% likely to be optimal, right? Yeah, Jen says hard refresh. That's what I'm doing here. Uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're actually going to try to fix this here behind the scenes while I keep ranting, right? But the point is, right, ask yourself based on the percent chance of that player to show up in the optimal lineup, what what are you fading on a probability standpoint, right? How 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 much risk are you taking on there, right? There's an 80% chance that Nola is not one of the optimal two pitchers there, but you have to pick two other pitchers, right? There may not be two other good pitchers that have a decent chance of being optimal themselves, right? So... As a, as a very general rule of thumb here, the, the the higher the raw probability of that player being optimal, period, the less likely I am to fade them. Um, and this happens a lot with aces, right? Like I think um, Saturday or maybe Saturday or maybe it was yesterday, the Verlander slate, like based on my process, I felt like Verlander was uh, far and away the best overall pitcher on the slate. He had a much higher percent chance to be optimal than the next best guy. Um I found, I think my research build process led me to believe that he was like 25 for 30% overowned. Um, but as it, when it all came out, I ended up like about even the, even with the field on him. Right. And that's because to me, there was, there was so much you gave up by being under, or f- there was a lot that you gave up by being, or I guess, let me put it this way. There's a lot you gave up by fading him in any given lineup, right? Any given lineup without Verlander had a lot of ground to make up. And there were ways to do it, but there were not an overwhelming number of different ways to do it. And I only chose to do so in like 50 or 60 of my 150, leading me to be like, I think I had like 55% exposure or whatever it ended up being, whatever the numbers were, right? And that's kind of the calculation I was I was getting to there. Um, maybe there were, there, were, there were lineups where it kind of worked. So um, let's pull this back up here. I think I've got a new build coming up here. So yeah, so... You know, on, on tonight's slate, as a, actually a counterexample, I think there are a lot of different ways to go, right? So I will probably, again, it all, it all depends on how things end up shaking out as we get close. But, you know, you can get to Manoa pretty easily here. You can get to uh, Alcantara. You can get to you here. Yeah, I'm trying to make this bigger for you guys, right? I actually think Nola appears kind of fadeable here, right? So, you know, even if you're getting him in your test build, right? Maybe that's an opportunity to take a bit of a stand there. Um, I often find that batters too, in particular, are way easier to fade, right? So if we have like, looks like we have this like three-headed monster of Braves, Astros, and Cardinals chalk tonight, right? Like these are all pretty negative leverage fades or like negative, pretty negative leverage plays. And we're talking about fading guys that have like a six, seven, eight percent chance of being in the optimal lineup. We're talking about fading stacks that at best have like a 10% chance of being in the optimal lineup. Very easy for me to find a pathway to fading those players. Now, do I want to fade them completely? Depends, right? Maybe I'm under, maybe I'm half the field on, on these stacks of these three teams. That's where it's kind of personal tolerance. But um, that's like, I think the best tool overall to ask yourself, do where do I want to be based on this is to, to actually remember what this number represents in the research build, Right. And I think this number kind of functions as the percent chance of that player being in the winning lineup. And it can be useful to help answer that question for yourself, right? Think about what that number represents and what side you want to be on there, right? Um, or even another way, right? Like let's let's look at this another direction. So 
you know, I think another trap, especially as you, or not even a trap, but something to be aware of as you get into research builds is going overboard with the positive leverage place, right? And looking at this and saying like, oh man, like, wow, I can get 5% leverage on, you know, basically all of the KC stacks, all of the middle of the order KC guys. Well, like proceed with caution. You're talking about, again, a guy that is six and a half percent chance of being in the optimal lineup, right? That's it's not actually going to happen that often. Or on the pitching side, right? Oh, Ian Anderson is the leverage play at pitching. Six and a half percentage points of leverage. Or Kyle Bradish actually is maybe even better, right? Only optimal 5% of the time. Proceed with caution, right? Um, I'm going to wrap this question up here. Um, Eagle said my screen is very blurry. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I don't know why. Um, I can make it a little bit bigger. I'm trying to show as much of the screen as possible here or show what's important that I'm trying to showcase here. Here, maybe let's do this because that's what's actually important here. Maybe that's a little bit better. Let's do that. So anyway, last note I'm going to make on this here is I find, I typically find it's easy for me to, to justify fading to my, to myself, right? I find that to be pretty easy uh, because of the probabilities of any one given player in the optimal are generally pretty low. The only situations where I'm very, very cautious about it are, where there is one player that represents, I think, a huge chunk of the percent optimal equity for their position. So anyway, let's let that one go. Um, and I missed your question earlier, Kino. I agree. I always enter 1,500 out of 1,500 when building the lineup. My question was taking a look at the sim results. Should I only look at the top 200? I, I would say no. I would say look at all 1,500, right? I, I, the more, I mean, the more data points you can get there, the better. So I would only, I would look at as many as you can because you're trying to approximate the percent chance of a player being in the optimal lineup, which is, you're basically saying 1500 represents any, this random 1500 subset of Sims essentially approximates the whole. That's what, that's what you're saying when you run a research build. And that's a potentially a decent assumption. It's, you know, depends, but that assumption definitely gets weaker the lower that number gets, Right. Like I would never say, oh, oh, I'm going to build a research build of 10 lineups and say it approximates the whole. And even 200 is pretty low. So I would, I would use the 1500 there. So. Um, Patrick says, uh, what's the health status for Kadri? I have no idea. Hope he's playing. But I have no idea. Probably not great. I think, I mean, he broke his arm, didn't he? I don't know, but as an Avs fan, I hope, I hope he plays. So, all right, guys, I think uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there for today. We're all caught up on questions. Um, it was a good show today. Enjoyed that one. Uh, we talked a lot. We answered a lot of questions that were kind of follow-ups here about the contest selection videos and, uh, or not even videos, right? The contest selection research uh, and streams and the um, upside correlation. And I got to move these back because I'm, I'm a little OCD about that here. Uh, the upside correlation and the lineup percentile stuff we did from last week. So uh, some good discussions there. We got to dive into uh, research builds a little bit as well. Um, Glenn says the game is until Wednesday. That is that is true. So we do have plenty of time there. Um, talked about all kinds of stuff. So I appreciate everybody coming and hanging out with me here for an hour or so. Appreciate everybody that watches and listens to the show uh, as it goes up as a recording on YouTube and uh, 
different podcast outlets. We will be right back here again tomorrow on Tuesday for another episode of Office Hours, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, And before we go, if you are watching or listening to this and you haven't already signed up for SaberSim or you used to be signed up and haven't been with us for a while, uh, we have a free seven-day trial on our site, sabersim.com. No strings attached. Come check us out. Use everything uh, we have on our app for free for seven days. Uh, If you are one of those people that used SaberSim in the past and left for a little while, we reset your trial at the start of baseball season. So you probably have a new trial sitting in there waiting for you to check it out. Um, In the meantime, good luck tonight. Enjoy game five and our little 10 game baseball slate here. And I'll see you all tomorrow. Take care.